just wanted to <coughs> mention uh, before we begin the shear this evening that this will be the final shear in our uh, current series. Um, this is our Benazmanim. Uh, uh, we'll take a three-week break and uh, pick up again Mirzashem on the Monday of Parshas Kiseitse. That is the 24th of August, the 4th of Elul. <coughs> so, of course, there's plenty in the Parshas between now and then, but uh, our uh, Shear will uh, take a three-week break. We hope for good news in between now and then. Um, and in the meanwhile, <coughs> we turn our attention to Parshas Vaishchanan. And Vaishchanan, of course, begins with the plea of Moshe to enter the land, to which, uh, which Hashem uh, refuses. After everything Moshe did to uh, enable us to, to, to come into the land, and with all of Moshe's uh, unique uh, righteousness, nonetheless, <coughs> this was withheld from him, uh, this request. And let us take a look at the first couple of psukim to try and understand what exactly Moshe is saying and to do justice to these psukim. So Vaishchanan begins at the very beginning of the parsha. I, I entreated or begged Hashem more at that time, saying. <coughs> we'll read Pasuk Kafdalet. It has many terms in it and many parts in it and we'll need to, to understand what, what they are. Hashem Elohim. You have begun to show your servant, that is to say, Moshe, your greatness and your strong hand. Who is God other than you in heaven and earth? Who would do like your deeds? Or like your might. And after that pasuk, Moshe proceeds to make his request. Let me please pass over, pass through, to pass over the Jordan, to see the good land, etc., etc. So it seems quite clear that pasuk kafdalad which was mentioned in Moshe's preamble, so to speak, before making his request, is somehow the introduction to his request. Whatever he says in Pasuk Kaftalad is the basis for him feeling that he should be able to then request of Hashem to go into Eretz Canaan. And what we need to try and understand is how is that so? How is that so? How are the contents of this first Pasuk somehow the basis of the request in the second Pasuk. Needless to say, if we wish to understand how they are the basis for his request, we have to understand what the Pasuk is saying. And this takes us back again to Pasuk Kafdalad. And Moshe says, You have shown me es godlecha ve'es yodcha chazaka, your greatness and your strong hand. To what is Moshe referring? What is Godlecha? What is Yodcha Hachazaka? <coughs> there is another uh, duality 
within, in the end of the Pasuk, where he says, Asher yasecha ma'asecha secha. There is no one who would do like your deeds and like your might. And here too, we ask, what is ma'asecha and what is gvurosecha? And I would like to consider two approaches, both of them in the Rishonim, to this question. And the first is the approach of the Abarbanel. Abarbanel explains <coughs> that Moshe's request is based on recent events, by which we mean the Jewish people have recently had encounters with a number of nations, when you think about it, all of them on the, the east side, or at least on the south to the east, not yet Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Canaan proper, but they've had somehow contact with them. Sichon, Og, Moab, Ammon, Edom. They've had communication with these nations. <coughs> and it's very interesting to, to, in summation, to see how their way that they related to these nations differed drastically. Because you have nations like Sichon and Og, where it was war. Sichon Melech HaMori, Og Melech out and out war. And that was fully sanctioned, and they are opposing the Jewish people, they seek to, to uh, harm the Jewish people, and, and the war is waged against them. Not so when it comes to the other nations, Ammon, Moab, Edom, in all of those three cases, the Jewish people are told explicitly, it was in, mentioned in last week's Parsha, Hashem says, Do not antagonize them. Do not initiate war against them. So this is very interesting, <coughs> because you have these nations splitting into two very distinct and separate groups. Sichon and Og, it's war. With the Amuri, it's war. With the others, avoid war. And what determines the different approach to these different groups of nations? Well, we see from Chazal, Rashi quotes uh, some of it, that each of those nations that was given special consideration had some source of merit. <coughs> Whether it's Chus Avos, I mean, Edom is called your brother. Edom has schosovos. And Lot has his own type of schosovos. Ammon and Moab are from Lot. And Lot actually had this, that famous uh, good deed that he did. He, he could have said that when they were in Egypt, that really uh, Sarah is, is his uh, wife and not his sister. He didn't say anything. It doesn't seem to be an enormous merit as far as we're concerned. But it was given due consideration. And this is what distinguishes those nations and vouchsafes them a lack of uh, any type of campaign, at least for the time being. Sichon and Og don't really have that much going for them. All they have is their enmity towards the Jewish people, and it was out-and-out out destruction. And this brings us to the two terms in the beginning of Moshe's plea. He says, you've begun to show your, your servant es godlecha, es yodcha chazaka, your greatness and your strong hand. 
What does this mean? Says Abarbanel, the term gedula, greatness, is often associated with the attribute of kindness. Thus we say, for example, l'cha Hashem ha-gedula v'ha-gevura v'ha-teferes, the greatness is kindness, gevura is more justice, teferes is the, the harmonization in the middle. <coughs> Likewise, we say ha-keil ha-gadol ha-gibor v'ha-nara. Once again, gadol is chesed, is kindness, rep- reflect, representing Avram. Gibor is gevura, the midah of Yitzchak, and nora. Again, that awesome combination, Yaakov says, So Gedula reflects <coughs> the divine attribute of kindness. This, says Abarbanel, is what Moshe is looking to, to base his plea on. Because he says to Hashem, what have you shown me? You've shown me an amazing combination, a simultaneous expression of God lecha, on the one hand, there are certain nations to which you have displayed kindness, gedula, while at the same time, there are other nations to which you have displayed yodcha chazaka, strong hand. Each one for what they deserve. And this then corresponds <coughs> to what Moshe proceeds to say. Who is God like you in the heavens and the earth? Once again, dividing into two. Ma'asecha are your deeds, your kind deeds of consideration towards Amon, Moab, and Edom, on the one hand, and Gevurosecha, your might, which is Yodcha, Chazaka, on the other hand. That is the explanation of this first Pasuk according to the Barbanel. And this now springs into. Moshe's request. Why? Because what is he asking for? Consideration. Although Moshe is under the cloud of Midas Hadin currently, for whatever the reason that he can't go into the land of Canaan, he hit the rock, whatever happened with Meimariva, whatever it may be. <clears throat> but what Moshe is, is intimating, based on their experiences with all these other nations, is that even at a time of Din, there is simultaneously an injection of chesed, gedula and gevura. And if that's true for them, can it be true for me? And perhaps maybe may I go in <coughs> to the land in spite of all of the din to be given some chesed consideration. It's also interesting, if I remember correctly, the Barbanel does not mention this, <coughs> but Moshe in, in, initiates his words by saying, the beginning of Kaftalet, Hashem Elohim. Well, Hashem Elohim is, <coughs> on the one hand, he actually uses uh, the, the, the Aleph Dalet Nun Yud, which is less so, but you have the, the two concepts, once again, of Gedula and Gevura, and saying that the two go together, perhaps the two can go together in my case as well. To which Hashem responded, no. Hashem said, Ravlach in Pasuk Kafvav. Altosef, do not speak about it anymore. And the Barbanel explains that Hashem is saying to Moshe, you have ample reward in the next world, and therefore that is where Chesed will be uh, dispensed to you. But for reasons that Hashem decided, 
It is only Din that holds sway and Moshe's request was denied. So once again, in summary, so that we are as clear as we can be, Moshe in the first Pasuk lays out the recent relationship and treatment of all the nations, some with Din, some with Chesed, all at the same time, each one in terms of what they deserve. He, he suggests that perhaps he is likely, or, or likewise, deserving of uh, Chesed uh, treatment, to which Hashem says, your chesed is later on, in the meanwhile, you're not going in. That's the approach of the Abarbanel, and again, if it did nothing other than draw us in closer to this opening posuk and try and pay attention to the differing terms that are used, uh, and give, giving each one its uh, space and meaning, so then certainly dayenu. In a, a parallel discussion. We have the approach of the Rashba. The Rashba, Rabbi Shlomo ben Aderet, <coughs> who is the primary disciple of the Ramban, and he himself is a Rebbe of Rabbi Bachya. And that is why every once in a while, Rabbi Bachya, in the, in the course of his commentary on the Torah, will treat us to an explanation from his Rebbe, the Rashba. I think Rabbi Nobachi is probably the only person that when he talks about Rabbi Shlomo, he's not talking about Rashi. When he wants to talk about Rashi, he calls him Rashi. But when he talks about Rabbi Shlomo, it's the Rashba, Rabbi Shlomo ben Adarin. And here we will see this line of Ramban down through Rashba and Rabbi Nobachia quite clearly. Because it begins, I believe, this discussion with the Ramban. The Ramban is emphatic in a number of places throughout the, the course of his commentary on the Torah, that the land of Israel is the primary location for the fulfillment of all mitzvahs. That is to say, <clears throat> we know that there are certain mitzvahs that can only be fulfilled in the land of Israel, what we call mitzvahs hatzluyos ba'aretz, land-based mitzvahs, agricultural-based mitzvahs. Other mitzvahs which are more mitzvahs shebegufo, mitzvahs that a person does on their person or with their person are obligations everywhere, not just in the land of Israel. And yet, says, says the Ramban, as true as it is that the obligation is the same wherever they are, nonetheless, the level of fulfillment cannot be compared <coughs> to a mitzvah done in Chutz Aretz versus a mitzvah done in the land of Israel. Even a mitzvah like tefillin or giving tzedakah or whatever else it may be, these personal mitzvahs, um, it is the center of all fulfillment is in the land of Israel. And let us see how that reverberates or resonates in the words of the Rashbah because the Rashbah continues this line um, in terms of the the special relationship between the land of Israel and keeping mitzvahs, regardless of the fact that mitzvahs are an, are an obligation everywhere. <clears throat> Indeed, this is the Rashba's famous answer to the question, which is regards to, to the giving of the Torah. As we know, the Gemara expounds that when we received the Torah, we stood, stood ourselves 
Sahar in underneath the mountain, in which the Gemara famously said, the mountain was suspended over us, <coughs> and we were given an offer we couldn't refuse. If you receive the Torah, all well and good. If not, it, it will end here. <coughs> now, the Gemara responds to this, and the Gemara says, well, then how can the Jewish people be held accountable? For, if they're forced into it, so then how are they responsible? They didn't, they didn't have a choice. In the words of the Gemara, this is a disclaimer against all liability for, for, for not keeping the Torah because they didn't have a choice whether to receive it or not. They were forced into it. <coughs> the Gemara is taking the statement at face value. But if you take it at face value, so then it's not an acceptance. Now the Gemara, continuing to, to endorse this idea, says, true, but in the story of Purim, we, we subsequently received the Torah Meiratzon out of our own volition, which itself, I mean, every single step in this Gemara is, is, uh, is fascinating and intriguing. It's, it's almost as if the Gemara is implying that <coughs> the first eight or nine hundred years or more of, uh, of, since receiving the Torah, so there you have this disclaimer in place. But uh, after a thousand years or so, we, things normalize and we have our obligations as we know them today. Many, many aspects of this Gemara need to be inspected, but for our purposes, the Rashba asks a simple question. If we only attained responsibility, again, taking the Gemara's words at face value, in the Purim story, so what were we doing in Persia in the first place? Why were we thrown out of the land of Israel? I mean, that took place beforehand. I thought we were absolved of all responsibility. To which the Rashba famously answers... That it could be that we cannot be punished in those first thousand years if we only receive the Torah through coercion. Maybe, but one thing's for sure. If you're not keeping the Torah, you can't stay in the land of Israel. That's got nothing to do with whether you were coerced to receive the Torah. The presence of the Jewish people in the land of Israel without the Torah cannot be. And this, once again resonates with the Ramban, because the famous position of the Ramban regarding the idea that the Avos kept the entire Torah before it was given is that this is true only in the land of Israel, because they understood that it just doesn't go. You can't be in the land of Israel and not keeping the mitzvahs. As my uncle Rev Cooperman, as Zatzal, used to say, in the land of Israel is however many hundreds of shekels or thousands of shekels plus Tariyag mitzvahs. That's, that's with the... Uh, <coughs> That's what's involved. So, achar hadvarim ha'ele. Let us come back to our pasuk kafdalud, where Moshe refers to uh, again. What are the terms? God lecha, your greatness. Ves yodcha chazaka. What's he talking about? For the Abarbanel, it was the recent wars, or the lack thereof. But for the Rashba, no. Moshe is going much further back. He draws our attention to a pasuk later on in our parsha, Perik Hey, pasuk Kaf Aleph, and we'll begin to see through those phraseologies <coughs> what we are referring to. Perik Hey, pasuk Kaf Aleph, within the context of, pardon me, Perik Hey, pasuk Kaf Aleph, within the context of the giving of the Torah. 
Vatamun, after you'd heard the Torah, you'd heard Hashem speak, Again, Perik Hei Pasuk Kaf Aleph. Vatomru, you said, Hen Her Onu Hashem es Kvodo ve es Godlo. Hashem has shown us his, his glory and his greatness. When? Matan Torah. Moreover, ve es Kolo we heard his voice from the fire, says Rashba, that's Yodo Chazaka. That is the show of strength. All of these expressions in the beginning of our Parsha are referring to Matan Torah. And it keeps going, by the way, because the next thing Moshe says is, Asher mi'el b'shamayim uva'aretz. Who is God like you in heaven and earth? Let us turn to Perik Dalet, Pasuk Lamed Vav. Perik Dalet, Pasuk Lamed Vav. Also about Matan Torah. Hashem allowed you to hear his voice. He was from, the, from he, emanating from the heavens. And on the earth he showed you the great fire. Once again, Matan Torah. And your, your, your deeds and your might. <coughs> All of this is Matan Torah. Why is Moshe placing his request to cross into the Yardin on the events really so long ago of Matan Torah? Says the Rashba, we have a principle. Hamaschil b'mitzvah, if a person begins a mitzvah, omrim lo gomor. We tell him, we encourage him to finish it. So, who was the conduit initially to transmitting the Torah to the Jewish people? Moshe. Hashem gives the Torah through Moshe. Torah tzivalanu Moshe. So Moshe was the maschil b'mitzvah. He began. And now we ask, did he conclude? Did Moshe see the whole thing through, the transmission of the Torah? Says Rashba, no, not fully. Why not? Do we not have all 613 mitzvahs? We do. But Moshe did not give them in Eretz Yisrael. And because the primary fulfillment, and here you see the Ramban again coming through in the, in the uh, words of his Talmud, because the primary fulfillment of the Tariq mitzvahs is in Eretz Yisrael, so then the full transmission of the Torah will also include Moshe teaching the Torah to the Jewish people in Eretz Yisrael. And that is why this is the basis of his request. I've started, I'd like to finish. When did I start? Har Sinai. When will I finish? In the land of Israel. That's the completion of the process of the transmission of the Torah. <coughs> and moreover, says the Rashba, this is why Moshe appeals to Hashem as Hashem Elohim. In the, back in the beginning, the first words of Per Pasuk Why? Because how, how is the initial transmission of the Torah introduced? Anochi Hashem Elokecha. So in other words, Moshe is saying, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, that was the process that began. I'd like to see it through. This is how he explains Moshe's request. Hashem responds by saying, Rav Lach, you've done enough. 
And the response is because ultimately the Torah has been given, or more correctly, fundamentally the Torah has already been given. Even if Moshe doesn't take that final step of giving it within the land of Israel, nonetheless, fundamentally the Torah has been given, and Moshe cannot invoke the principle of Hamaschal B'mitzvah, Omer Mlokomor. So these are our fascinating uh, understandings of the opening section of Parshas Vazchan and Moshe's famous plea with regards to entering the land. And I'd like to conclude actually this sentence, this section, <coughs> by raising perhaps a, a, a disarmingly simple question about this whole opening section of the Parsha. Namely, why is Moshe talking about this? What is the background to that question? The beginning of Chumash Devarim is Moshe's words of rebuke to the Jewish people, as we spoke about at length last week. This issue of whether Moshe can enter the land seemingly is out of place in the beginning of Chumash Devarim. It's not rebuke. It's, uh, on, on a simple level, it has nothing to do with the Jewish people. It's between Moshe and Hashem. So on the one hand, we're, we're naturally upset to put it mildly, that Moshe is not able to go into the land of Israel, that, that, of course. But how does it take its place within Moshe's words to the people in terms of ethical exhortation, etc., and so forth? And this question is raised by the Ibn Ezra. And his response is most profound. Says Ibn Ezra, what is Moshe's goal? In the beginning of Chumash Devarim, it is to ready the Jewish people to enter the land of Israel. What needs to happen in order for them to be as ready as Moshe can make them? Well, a number of things. Firstly, if they've made mistakes in the past, they need to have lessons learned, otherwise known as tochecha, rebuke. He also exhorts them about things that will be waiting for them in the land. Temptations for paganism, idolatry, and other terrible practices of the current inhabitants of the land. That's also part of preparing them. And what else can Moshe do to prepare the Jewish people to enter the land? Says Ibn Ezra, (coughs) one more thing. Let them know how badly he wanted to go into the land, and he was unable to do so, so that they will at least value their opportunity to do so. That's also part of of making good on entering the land. There's a famous marshal of the, of the Dubna Magid uh, with regards to this very thing. He doesn't quote the Ibn Ezra, I don't believe, but very, very uh, <coughs> similar in theme. And he tells of a certain Rav, and he was, he was uh, the Rav of a village for uh, many years and very beloved, them to him, him to them. And... The time came, his family was growing, and he was, he was, the time came to move on to a more prestigious position. They couldn't pay him that much, and uh, therefore he moved to, uh, accepted a post in a, a larger town. The time came, and the shlichim came from the larger town to, to pick him up, and it was all very, uh, very nice and handled very bechavadikly. Just as he's about to be handed over to the shlichim from the, from the bigger town, one of the gaboyim from the villagers throws himself at the feet of the, of the rabbi and says, please, rabbi, don't leave us. We'll do anything. How can you abandon us? 
we love you so much and and it was very awkward and uncomfortable because we'd already been through this and uh, there's no reversing the decision and I'm, uh, I, what do you hope to gain? I can't, it's too late for me to change my mind. To which the Gabbai said quietly to, to the rabbis, he kind of picked himself up and he says, I know there's no changing your mind, but we loved you and I want to make sure that the new town will also appreciate you. Let them know that we begged you to stay and hopefully they'll hold on to you themselves. And this is the Dubna Magid's Moshal for uh, why Moshe, it's part of preparing the Jewish people. Uh, amazing to consider, Lahavdal, even for ourselves and certainly for that generation, that n- no one is greater than Moshe. And he was denied the ability to enter Eretz Yisrael. All those who, who are able to enter should certainly value <coughs> the, uh, the, the merit, the privilege that they have. So from the beginning of Oishan, <coughs> we move to uh, not much further, in fact, to the beginning of Perik Dalet. And the beginning of Perik Dalet actually will contain two mitzvahs, two negative prohibitions. Let's read the Pasuk, Perik Dalet, Pasuk Aleph. Va'ata Yisrael, Shema Elachukim Mishpatim. Listen to the chukim, the statutes, the laws, that I'm teaching you, etc. Pasuk Beis Lo Sosifu. Do not add on. To that which I'm commanding you, don't detract from it. Okay. These are two of the 613 commandments. Lotosifu and Lotigru, which become known in the common parlance as Baltosif and Baltigra. Not to add on and not to detract. Now, what does this mean? Practically, if we may ask, what exactly is being prohibited here? Rashi elaborates. Loto Sifu says Rashi, <coughs> you know what it, the Pasuk is, is talking about? Kagon, for example, Chamesh Parashios Betfilin. Tfilin are meant to have four compartments. If a person would do, put, have five compartments in their Tfilin, that's Baltosif. Or Chamesh Minim Belulav, there's the four species on Sukkot, Lulav, etc. And if you would add a fifth, that's baltosif. Or chamesh tzitzios. If you would have five uh, sets of strings instead of four for tzitzios. So this is Rashi's explanation. And again, it's from Chazal. Now, <coughs> we should note, and this becomes a very interesting thing now, um, baltosif, not to ever have more in the mitzvah than the actual mitzvah. It's noteworthy that these two prohibitions are repeated in two weeks' time, in Parshas Re'eh. If we have a look at the beginning of Perik Yud Gimel, okay, Perik Yud Gimel, Pasuk Aleph. Everything that I'm, t- that I'm commanding you should do. Do not add, do not take away. So that's very interesting. In Parshas Vaischanan, we have Baltosif, so a prohibition against adding. And in Parshas Re'e, again. Why again? Is there anything uh, that we learn the second time that we did not already know? So interestingly, 
if we look closely at Rashi, we might see that there is. Because Rashi says, on that second time, again, Perik Yud Gimel Pasuk Aleph, the Tosef Rashi gives examples again. Five compartments in the Tefillin, five species in the Lulav, Arba Brochos Lebirchas Kohanim. Four blessings for Birchas Kohanim. He's referring to Duchening. Duchening, we know, only has three brachos, Yivarechacha, Ya'er, and Yisa. And one should know that if you added on a blessing, <coughs> it's Baltosif. The Torah is very specific. Only these three. There's an interesting Shaila, by the way, apropos of this, in the Tshubas of Rabbi Pesach Frank, It's, it's a question that, you would, that we wouldn't think to ask. But R- R- Frank says, when someone does a mitzvah, so it's quite uh, typical to say to them, yashakach, yashakach, or in English, shkoyach. And <coughs> they've had an aliyah to the Torah, so, so on and so forth. Uh-huh. And it's a good thing to say. But the shaila is, is it advisable to say Yashakoach to the Kohanim when they finish Duchening. How could that possibly be an issue? Because the standard response, once you know how these responses go and you know what to, what to say, if someone says Yashakoach, so how does one respond? By saying, Baruch Tiyeh. As long as the Kohanim are on the Duchen, they are enjoined from adding on Brachos to the three Brachos of Birchas Kohanim. And therefore, could it be that you will be causing problems? Because if you say a shakoach, they say baruch tiyah, and that's bracha number four. So much so that Rav Frank advises that you should save the shakoach until they're already left the duchen. Once they're walking back and receiving their accolades from the, uh, from the congregation, so then it's already not the setting of birchas kohanim, and it's fine. I recall I was once in a, in a shul, actually, and this, uh, one sees the... Uh, the sensitivity of, of the poskin because there was a Kohen and uh, a number of Kohen were duchening and one of the Kahal, as soon as he finished duchening, calls out Yasha Koach and the Kohen loud and proud uh, calls out in response, Baruch Tiyah and that was a real life uh, demonstration of uh, what Ratsi Pesach Frank was talking about. Either way these three examples of Baltosif the second time round, that is to say, in the second mentioning, Perikud Gimel, are not exactly the same. We note that Rashi didn't speak about four blessings in Birchas Kohanim the first time. He spoke about five compartments, all the fives. Five compartments of Tefillin, five tzitzis, five species of Nulav. Here he added the second example <coughs> of four blessings. Says the Maharal in the Gur'ariyeh, because this is Rashi's way of saying that's why the Torah repeated it again. Because one may have thought that the problem of adding on to a mitzvah is only if you add on all at the same time. At the same time that you have these four species, there's another one. At the same time that you have four compartments in the tefillin, there's another one. So they're together, all together, and there's one extra. But time doesn't work that way. In other words... Once you say the first bracha and the second bracha and the third bracha, by the time you say the, third, the, th- the fourth blessing that you wish to add, the three have gone already. One may have thought that 
time and, and matter are not the same in this respect and maybe there's no issue anymore of adding a fourth blessing because it's not together with the other three in, in real time to this end the Torah says no it repeats, it reiterates Baltosif to bring in this example as well now we should note that everything we've said so far and it's all from Rashi about Baltosif is all what you could call a micro addition by which I mean <clears throat> it's about adding on something to a mitzvah. Because the mitzvah is tzitzis, you added a set of strings. The mitzvah is filling, you added a compartment. But there is another entire branch of baltosif or vista within baltosif that doesn't seem to be discussed certainly in the Gemara so much. Rashi doesn't talk about it at all, but other Rishonim do. Namely, Perhaps Baltosif is not <coughs> only about adding on a detail to a mitzvah, but maybe adding on a mitzvah to the Torah. Which means, alongside a discussion of adding a fifth compartment to your tefillin, what about adding mitzvah number 614 to the Torah? Is that Baltosif? Rashi hasn't spoken about it. But Ramban says, I believe it is. And he adduces support. Again, it's not... It's not uh, something that's hard for us to relate to. It just hasn't really been openly discussed. <coughs> but the Rambana juices support for this in, from the Yerushalmi, actually, in Maseches Megillah. Because the Yerushalmi there says that when they came to add the festival of Purim, they were hesitant to do so because they thought maybe it's Baltosef. We're adding on a festival. And they, they were not satisfied or reassured until they found, and here the, the Gemara also, the Bavli in, in, in the Megillah Dafya Dalad also speaks in this way, until they were able to base the institution of Purim on an existing Torah principle. After all, if being saved from slavery to, to freedom gives us a festival, then certainly being saved from from uh, destruction to, to salvation, somehow to draw it out from an existing Torah idea. Because otherwise, it could be Baltosif. Now says Ramban, here we're not talking about adding a detail to the mitzvah. We're not talking about adding another day to one of the festivals. We're talking about adding an entirely new festival. But that teaches you that that is also a branch of Baltosif. And it thus emerges that Baltosif can take one of two forms. Again, to restate, to be clear. Either adding a detail onto a mitzvah or adding a, that, or adding a mitzvah onto the mitzvahs of Taryag. And this approach of Ramban is also shared by Rambam. Because the Rambam, in his introduction to Perik Chelek, when he goes through and, and, and presents his 13 principles of faith, and one of them we know, of course, is Lo Yachal. Well, we're quoting from Yigdal. Rambam didn't write Yigdal. Yigdal's based on his principles. But we say Lo Yachalif Akel, There will never be new mitzvahs added in, or in the Anima means. Right? There will be no substitutions. The Nusach of the Anima means was also not from Rambam. But all of these are based on uh, Rambam. And he demonstrates why or what are his sources for each of these principles and when it comes to the principle that there will be no new mitzvahs Rambam says because the Torah itself said 
Baltosif, Lotosif Alav. That is his source, or one of his sources, for the idea that there will be no new mitzvahs, which clearly indicates that the Rambam agrees or concurs with Ramban that Baltosif is as much about adding another mitzvah onto Taryag as it is adding a, an aspect onto an existing mitzvah within Taryag. And thus, if we uh, take stock here, <coughs> we will see that it emerges that there really are two different variations or applications of the principle of Baltosif. Says the Vilna Gaon in his commentary, Aderes Eliyahu, if you want to know from where do we get the idea that there are two applications of the prohibition of Baltosif, the answer is very simple. Because the Torah said it twice. The Vilna Gaon explains <coughs> that it is the two iterations of Baltosif. The first in Ar Parsha, Vaischanan, and secondly, <coughs> the, uh, in Parsha's Re'eh, the Torah says this twice because each time it's talking about a different one, a different type of Baltosif. And how can you see this? Says Vilna Gaon, quite simply, by reading the Psukim. If we go back to our Parsha, and again, that's Perik Dalid Pasuk Aleph. So what does it say? Va'ata <coughs> Yisrael, Pasuk Aleph says, Shema elachukim, ve'lemishpatim, heed the statutes, the mishpatim. In other words, the topic at hand in the beginning of Perik Dalid is the body of law made up of chukim and mishpatim. All of those. To which the next Pasuk says, Lotosifu, do not add. Don't add on to what? On what we just spoke about in Pasuk Aleph, namely the body of laws. How do you add on to a body of laws? By adding on another law. How do you add on to the body of mitzvahs? By adding on another mitzvah. And that is why uh, Parshas Vaischan, on the first uh, presentation of Baltosif, is about the prohibition from adding mitzvahs on to Taryag. But if you contrast that <coughs> with the second time, back again to Perik Yud Gimel Pasuk Aleph, so what is the topic at hand? Eis Kol Hadavar. The entire matter, the totality of the matter, not Chukim and Mishpatim, laws, one thing. It, keep it in its entirety. Keep it correctly. Don't add on to it. And don't detract from it. Because, says Vilna Gaon, the, the, the topic in the beginning of Perkut Gimel, the second time around, is each davar. So the baltosif there is the second form of baltosif, not adding an, another aspect to that particular mitzvah. And these emerge, therefore, this is the parshanut of the Vilna Gaon. Look at the context of the first time. Look at the context of the second one. First time, chukim and mishpatim. Second time, the davar. And then you see that the baltosif is different. Support, I believe, one could say, <coughs> for, for the Vilna Gaon, is that the sifrei, which is the medrash halacha to chumash devarim, only comments on the second time on Parshas Re'eh 
and gives the examples of five compartments of tefillin, five species in the Arba Minim. It didn't say anything in Vaishanan, which is interesting, because normally Chazal will comment on the first available opportunity. But it could be that according to the, to the Vilna Gaon, the first time it's self-explanatory, adding on to mitzvahs is adding on another mitzvah. It's only the second time the Sifrei says this is a different type of Baltosif, which is a detail to a mitzvah, the fifth compartment or the fifth species or whatever it is. Well, what is there to say after the Vilna gone? Well, it depends. If you live in Vilna, there is yet what to say. Because one of the later Mepharshim, or Poskim more correctly, Rabbi Tzalel HaKohen of Vilna, one of the two famous Dayanim, Rabbi Tzalel HaKohen and Rabbi Shlomo HaKohen, in his Chuvas Reishis Bikurim, he also propounds this idea that the two Baltosifs are the two different types of Baltosif. The first one is adding a mitzvah, and the second is adding a detail to a mitzvah. Exactly like the Vilna Gaon, and he, he demonstrates this from a completely different angle. Namely, says Rabbi Salah Cohen, let's go back to the beginning of Pasuk, uh, to, to Pasuk Beis, in fact. To Pasuk Beis, the first, that is to say, Perigdalad Pasuk Beis, Lotosifu Aladavar. And the second time, Perikud Gimel Pasuk Aleph, Lotose Falaf. Almost identical, but not completely. Because the first is in the plural. Lotosifu and Lotigru. The second is in the singular. Lotose Falaf, Velotigrami Menu. Why would the very same prohibition <coughs> be mentioned first in the plural and then in the singular? Says Rabbi Salala Cohen, because it's not the same prohibition. Like the Vilna Gaon, <coughs> he concludes that the first is adding a mitzvah to Taryag. The second is adding a detail to a mitzvah of Taryag. So, so says Rabbi Salala Cohen, who is most likely to be, to be in violation of these two different types of prohibition? If the first is about adding on a mitzvah to, to the 630 mitzvahs, who is even potentially capable of doing such a thing? For, for whom is that even shaykh? It's the Sanhedrin. If an individual would say, I hereby add on mitzvah 613, he will hereby be ignored by everyone because he, had, he doesn't exist in that capacity, and is a, a, such a statement not only is wrong, it's meaningless. And therefore, it's really someone who's much more a communal body, like the Sanhedrin. They would be the ones that the Torah is saying, this is it, and do not add any, on any mitzvah. And that is why the first... the first uh, time... It's written in the plural. Lotosifu. Velotigru. Because since the matter at hand is adding on a mitzvah to Tayyag, that is addressed to the body of people that would do so, namely the Sanhedrin. The second time is down to each individual that he would put in another species or that he would uh, attach another tzitzis. And because it applies to each and every individual, that is why it is mentioned Biloshan Yachid as Lotosef Velotigra. So we see that the Vilna Gon 
laid emphasis on context, what's being discussed here, the body of laws or the, or the particular matter, whereas the, the Rebbet Salah lays emphasis on the phraseology of plural versus singular, and the two converge and they, uh, they come out with the same idea. So these are some uh, classic comments with regards to Baltosiv, especially worthwhile to uh, devote some attention to these things as they are found in Parshas Re'e, because Re'e is always in, in the three weeks between uh, one shear and another. For us, we have never given a shear in Re'e, and therefore the more we can give it to entry into our existing shearim, certainly the better. <coughs> So perhaps uh, to conclude by devoting uh, some attention to the, the days in which we find ourselves, not, uh, not easy days. And I came across a thought in the writings of Rebbe Minsberg, the Sefer Ben Melech, and he has an entire volume on, on Ben Hamitzarim and uh, Tisha B'Av and, and related matters. And it's especially apropos of the beginning of our shir, where we spoke about uh, the giving of the Torah and the giving of the Torah in the land of Israel, the fulfillment of the Torah in the land of Israel. We have, an, we have a notion. It's more than a notion. It's really a, it's a posuk. It's a prediction in the Navi, <coughs> which says that all of the fast days in the future will become Yomim Tovim. As it goes through them, Tzom HaRaviv, Tzom HaChamishi, the fast of Tammuz, the fast of the fourth month, the fifth month, the seventh month, the tenth month, will all become uh, Yomim Tovim for the Jewish people. Why will they become Yomim Tovim? Well, presumably because <coughs> it is the, it's really the loss and the longing that is felt during those days which, which brings about their reversal. And therefore, these days ultimately contribute which, which is really an amazing idea. It's a very, very deeply optimistic idea. As if to say, <clears throat> the, the, the 17th of Tammuz, all the, the grieving and all the mourning that takes place on the 17th of Tammuz is what brings about its reversal. And the, de- the day, therefore, is an accessory to a Yom Tov and becomes uh, a Yom Tov itself. And the same is true for Tisha B'av and uh, Tzom Gedalia and Asara Batevis. It's a very... Uh, important perspective, which, which has to be taken very carefully, but it's an important part of the day because if if the goal of Tisha B'av is just to wallow in misery and uh, with no outcome, so then so what outcome is can possibly can possibly happen there? There's a famous statement of the Shaloh Hakadosh. Again, you, we see that there's this underlying uh, optimism here, which has to be. It can't become uh, so overt, otherwise we'll miss the point of the days completely. They're not happy days. But they're days where things can happen. We know that um, when Tisha B'Av, in a year that Tisha B'Av falls on Shabbos, so we, we don't have any Avelos, and, and it's, it's largely pushed off until, until Matzah Shabbos. And why do we not have any Avelis on Shabbos? Well, it's not hard to answer that question. Shabbos is essentially a happy day, and the Avelis and the two can't go together. Along comes the Shaloh HaKadosh and says a most unexpected thing. 
the reason why there is no mourning when Tisha B'Av falls on Shabbos is because Jewish mourning for the Beis HaMikdash is the foundation of the building of the third Beis HaMikdash. It's what one could could call constructive mourning. Because it is through those feelings that the third base Hamikdash will come and the ground is already being prepared. So, says the Shalar Kodesh, if it's constructive mourning, you can't do it on Shabbos because it's also to build on Shabbos. The mourning over the third base Hamikdash is, is building the foundations for the third. The mourning over the second base Hamikdash builds the foundations for the third. You cannot build foundations on Shabbos. It's also midin bona. I think it gives a completely different perspective on what it is that we're, we're, we're trying to achieve. <clears throat> the day when one might have thought the goal is to wallow in self-misery, and that's not exactly what it is. So we're looking for, to, for these days to, to turn into Yom Tovah. But the truth is, says of Leib Minsberg, that's not entirely accurate. They were, they're already Yom Tovim. They were originally meant to be Yom Tovim. Why do we say that? These two days that bracket the three weeks, 17th of Tammuz at the beginning, the ninth of Av at the end, were meant to be Yom Tovim from the outset. Why? Because what, was, what would have happened on them if things hadn't gone wrong? What are the two greatest gifts the Jewish people have received from Hashem in this world? The Torah and the land of Israel. What was meant to happen on the 17th of Tammuz is that we were meant to receive the first set of luchos. That's the final installment in the giving of the Torah. And that would be a Yom Tov, just like Shavuos is a Yom Tov. So in a sense, the 17th of Tammuz was hijacked from its intended Yom Tov statement, status to become a day of tragedy. And what about the 9th of Av? The 9th of Av is the day, had things not gone wrong, that the spies would have come back and given the report they should have given, which would have initiated the entry of the Jewish people into the land of Israel. That would have been a Yom Tov. And once again... Like the 17th of Tammuz, Tisha B'Av was hijacked. The report was not as it should be. It was a bad report, which then downward spiraled the whole thing and set us on a course of, of exile uh, until further notice. And that's why, says, says Rebleib Minsberg, if people say that we're looking forward to changing these days into Yom Tovim, it's more correct to say we're looking forward to changing them back into Yom Tovim. We're looking forward to reclaiming them as the Yom Tovim that they were. And so there is without question <coughs> work to do. And we hope for Basuras Tovas, we hope for the full Geula, and at the very least we hope for decisive steps t- towards the full Geula. And uh, Mitzvah Shem, we look forward to the time where we will once again be reunited with these days as the Yom Tovim they should have been. And that should come. The Simchas Olam al Roshenu, Bimehira Biamenu Amen. Just to mention again before, uh, uh, before we uh, say goodbye, the next uh, year we're taking a break for three weeks. So the next year will be on the Monday of Parshas Kiseitse, which is 24th of August, Dalad Elul. If the Jewish people are redeemed between now and then, I still think that the, the year should be able to take place. Uh, either way, we'll be in touch and hope for Becerra's Tobas. All the best. Thank you.